Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Stable Moments Podcast. I am so thrilled to introduce today's guest, who is Judge Ashley Wilcott. Ashley Wilcott is a certified child welfare law specialist and an experienced trial attorney. She has practiced in various capacities in juvenile court since 1992, including as a parent's attorney, guardian ad litem, a special assistant attorney general representing the Department of Human Resources, Division of Family and Children's Services, and currently as a juvenile court judge. Ashley has also worked in the government sector as the ongoing and current Georgia Supreme Court Justice on Committee for Children Cold Case Project lead and as a governor appointee child advocate for the state of Georgia. Ashley has her own child welfare consulting firm where she serves as an anchor on court TV and as a legal analyst on many media outlets. She is a highly sought after guest lecturer and speaker for numerous organizations and universities. That's why we are so lucky to have her today. All right, I can't say anymore. You guys are in for a treat. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma, from foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond. We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I know you're super busy. I follow you on LinkedIn and you are all over the place doing so much stuff. So if you could let everybody know kind of how you came into this work, how you came into child welfare, how you decided to be a judge and kind of the intro. Sure, absolutely. So thank you for having me on. Um, You know, once we connected on LinkedIn, I definitely saw the opportunity to talk with you because of what your goals are, your involvement with uh, the foster care system. So I knew in eighth grade, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I was in a mock court trial um, school project with law students who were teaching us. And so I knew then I was gonna be a trial lawyer. And then I also knew that I wanted to get involved with work around children in some capacity. So fast forward, and I've always, ever since I graduated Emory Law School, I have worked with legal rights of children in some capacity. So at one point I represented parents and I've also served as a guardian ad litem. I was the executive director of a Fulton County CASA program, a nonprofit. So I've moved through the child welfare system in different capacities. I've been really fortunate to do that because I've loved my work. I represented DFACS for many years and then was appointed by Governor Deal as the director of the Office of the Child Advocate. And the benefit to that was it put all of my wealth of experience into one place to really look at the system as a whole. And I think that's when I got very frustrated when I realized how many people make assumptions. I know you and I just talked about this very briefly, but don't understand the child welfare system in its entirety, make assumptions, what they think is the case. And the reality is it's a very, very complex system. We have one of the best child welfare uh, systems, our nation does, and in spite of that, there are going to be fails and there are going to be things that need to be improved. Um, so my goal is always now to educate about our system. That's awesome. And how lucky are we to have you? Because 
there's not uh, not all judges or attorneys have gone through this whole perspective of Department of Children and Families and being a CASA um, executive director of a CASA. So you really get all aspects of this, which which really um, add some richness to your to your work and your ability to do what you do. Yeah, thank you. It does give me all of the different perspectives. I serve now as a judge pro tem in juvenile court. Um, I love what I do. I've loved all of my different roles, but I do feel like it's given me the opportunity to have all the different perspectives and understand the different needs, the different, the different successes and the different fails. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So for people listening, explain what the process is in regards to courts as soon as a kid is determined to be removed from their home. Sure. So the thing I'd like to start with, and you can always tell me to fast forward or stop talking so much, I can talk about it for a very long time. Sure. But one of the things I always want to start with is a lot of people say, even in court, defects stole my children, mm -hmm. defects took my children. Well, the reality is, yes, that's the investigative agency to determine whether or not there's been abuse or neglect, but the court has to issue an order. So the only way a child can even come into foster care in the first place is if law enforcement takes the child into custody or in the alternative, which is the majority of the time, the court has to issue an order and say, this child, these children are at imminent risk. This is why they're at imminent risk. They cannot be protected and there's probable cause to believe this and they need to be in the custody of the state. I don't think anyone I know believes that a state should have to be in the business of raising children, mm -hmm. right? Like nobody says, oh, the state should raise children. But rather, if children are not being protected, if they're being abused and neglected, and there's no way to protect the children in the home or put the children with a relative where they can be safe, then the last option is for the state to take custody. So it's for a good reason that that happens, and it's to protect children who are being harmed or imminent risk of harm. So once that order is issued, or once law enforcement has removed a child from a home, then the court system kicks into place. There are a lot of guidelines. There are a lot of federal laws. There are a lot of policies around it. But long story short, within 72 hours of that child coming into care, there's a preliminary protective hearing. That's the very first hearing in front of the court for the court to determine was there in fact probable cause for this child to be removed from the home. Does the child need to be returned to the home or rather does the child need to stay in the state's custody? And the thing I want to point out, and some people get frustrated, but it's the reality of our system is when defects request custody of a child from a court, that is what's called an ex parte order, but that's allowed under Georgia law. So they're investigating, they're there, they're there to protect the children. And if there's imminent risk, then they have the ability to contact the court directly to say, we need the custody of this child. Okay. Okay. So um, is the court involved though, when the police officer or when Department of Children and Families is making that decision on the ground? Yes, great question. The court always is in terms of if DFACS needs custody, they have to contact the court right then. They cannot do anything with that child in terms of taking the child unless and until the court issues the order. Now, law enforcement has the ability to take custody of the child without going through the court, given the emergency circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and then it comes to court after that has happened within 72 hours. But the reality in the state of Georgia is it is um, unique for law enforcement to take custody. 
The goal is law enforcement DFACs work together so that law enforcement can contact DFACs, the DFACs can then make their efforts to preserve the family, and if that's not possible, then DFACs calls the court. So yes, the court has to issue that order for DFACs before DFACs could physically remove a child from a home. Okay, so then is is the clock running before that 72 hours for DFACs to come up with options for that child if they are not gonna be put back in the biological parent's home? Absolutely, and so DFACs has to investigate. They have to be able to tell the court when they call and say, hey, we need custody of this child or these children, they have to be able to tell the court, these are all of the things we've done in our investigation. Here's the situation with the mother. Here's the situation with the father. And they have to identify the father because frequently that information is not known and they have to do the investigation to figure out who's the father of the child. Let's not forget him if it's a single parent home, mm -hmm. right? Then they have to be able to say to the court what reasonable efforts they've made. What does this mean? DFACS is required under the law to make reasonable efforts to preserve a family, to keep a child in the home. And so let's say, for instance, that there are no utilities in a house, and that's the only reason it's you know 20 degrees outside, there's no heat, and they don't have enough clothes, and they're cold, and they can't cook food, and they can't have a fire and the, the family has no money to go stay at a hotel or another place, right? So if that's the only circumstance, a good example of a reasonable effort might be, let's get a church or let's get a community and see, can they assist this family for one night, for two nights? DFACS has certain funds called PUP funds. Can we utilize that to help this family with the first bill and give resources to the parents to help find work to help be able to pay the bills in the future? Let's do that as a reasonable effort so the children don't have to be removed from the home. So the court's always going to want to know, DFACS, what have you done to try to keep this child in the home? And even if you were to do things to keep the child in the home, is it safe? So take that same scenario, Rebecca, and assume that perhaps there's also a meth lab in that same home that has no utilities. That's a completely different circumstance. Mm -hmm. Paying the utilities isn't going to help this family protect these children because of the meth lab. The reality may be the whole family's involved in this meth ring. They're all getting arrested. There's nothing else we can do at this moment to keep this family together, keep these children in this home. So we have to take custody. Sure, sure. Okay, so if you make the determination that the children are not safe and they are going to go into... Department of Children and Families custody. What does that look like for birth parents being able to enter into some sort of um, agreement to be able to try to get their kids back? Sure, so first of all, it's traumatic. Let's just remember that no matter how bad a child's situation is, the trauma of being removed and placed into foster care is even more traumatic than whatever they experienced at the home, believe it or not, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would suggest it's same for the parents. It's traumatic for them. Even if they've abused and neglected, it's traumatic for them. They generally will come to court and say, I love my children, I want my children back with me, even if they're not capable of the parenting or doing what they need to do. Having said that, some of the frustrations are, the reality are once a child comes into foster care, it's not as if they're gonna see their parent every day. They're not gonna talk to their parent every day. The immediate case plan, the first goal in terms of the federal requirements and the state matching law is reunification. So the first goal is always children go back to their parents. And, and, and the goal is 
What's the safety risk? And if we can remove that safety risk, then that child can go home. Okay. Okay. So when you talk about the immediate um, plan, um, so like, let's take a parent that's on drugs and their drug use has shown that they're not able to take um, care of their kids. Are these longer plans? Like if a parent were to leave today and they need to, I mean, I'm guessing with a meth lab situation, there's probably pending charges on the parents right. um, that they need to resolve, like either, you know, fulfill their sentence or do they need to go through that and clear up their criminal cases before they can even be um, considered to have their kids come back? Uh, generally, yes. So you have great insight because often what the case plan reunification goal is that they have to resolve their criminal charges. Okay. So the reality is, though, as you well know, criminal charges can sometimes take years to get to court. Right. And so it may not always be realistic that they can resolve those quickly. Well, every case is unique. The court can always consider, in spite of those criminal charges, is it appropriate for the children to go back home at this point in time? Of course, there's a difference between, uh, you know, possession of methamphetamine or intent to distribute versus um, a DUI or perhaps, um, you know, a traffic ticket. And they've had too many of them and they've gotten arrested because they've never taken care of those tickets. They're very different scenarios. The law says, if a child is in foster care for 15 out of 22 months, then the department has to proceed with the termination of parental rights petition. Okay. Unless there's a compelling reason not to. And so during those 15 months that this child's been in care, the department is working, should be working with the parents on a reunification case plan. And that means the parents have the opportunity to obtain drug treatment, to deal with their criminal charges, to realize, learn about parental capacity and what it means to stay clean and not do drugs or not be um, you know, distributing drugs with the children in the house, whatever all those things are. And if you get to 15 out of 22 months, and let's say that a parent has tested clean every month, is going through inpatient rehab and has successfully completed that, and the only outstanding thing is those criminal charges, that might be a compelling reason why there will not be a termination of criminal rights. It gives the parent longer amount of time to resolve those criminal charges. I hope all of that makes sense. It's a complex system. I'm just trying to boil it down. No, it does. And, and I was kind of thinking like, what's the soonest a parent could get? You know, how long do you need to prove that you are fit um, to be able to get your kid back? And I understand that the circumstances of the kid coming into care obviously impact that but um you know how clean do you have to be or how long do you have to be clean how quick can the turnaround be right so let's just talk about substance abuse in general the reunification case plans and the court are generally going to require six months six consecutive months of clean drug screens so you can look at that as a benchmark, if you will. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Of course, the court can decide differently. The court may decide it was a fluke. They tested positive once because of all the testimony that they'd never used before and may decide they don't need six months. But generally, rule of thumb, it's going to be six months. The other thing I just want to mention is there are some circumstances in which reunification is not the first plan, but they're very specific laid out in the code. And let me just give you a, a worst case scenario. 
let's say that same situation where there are no utilities, they're cooking meth in the house and the meth lab exploded and one of the children died as a result. Mm. Those other children come into care. That's an aggravated circumstance, which means the department doesn't necessarily have to start off with reunification. They can ask the court to say non-reunification because as a result of those parents' actions, a child died. So there are certain scenarios where reunification may not be right off the bat, but generally I think the best thought is that's always the first goal in, in the majority of cases. Now, just for my personal, um, I'm, I'm interested if a parent or set of parents have been involved with sexual trauma of their kids, is that something that is seen by the courts as uh, something that can be rehabilitated and those kids could go back with their abusers in those situations? Well, great question again and good insight. So it depends on the facts of the case. It depends on the type of sexual abuse, the severity of the sexual abuse. Um, and the answer is theoretically, can those parents achieve reunification? Sure. Let me give you a scenario how. And um, one is there may be criminal charges that um, don't come to fruition or are cases that aren't prosecuted because perhaps the evidence isn't good or the forensic interview wasn't done correctly and therefore cannot be utilized as evidence against the alleged perpetrator. If there are no criminal charges, you take that off the plate. If you have a child who disclosed but then recants mm. and you take that off the plate, if you don't have the right kind of forensic interview for me as the judge to consider, so you take that off the plate, if you don't have any witnesses, which frequently with sexual abuse you don't, if you don't have any medical exams suggesting that there's been sexual abuse, you get to a point where, okay, I had one outcry initially by a child, that's the only evidence we have. We may now have evidence that the parents have gone to a psychologist with a psychological evaluation and it doesn't recommend any further treatment, a psychiatric evaluation that doesn't recommend any further treatment. In a perfect storm, if all those things happen, then reunification may be achieved. But I would suggest with sexual abuse, um, the court absolutely considers every piece of evidence because if there's evidence by clear and convincing um, grounds that, the, that there's sexual abuse by one of the parents is the perpetrator, there's going to be a lot that the parent has to do to ever consider reunification by a court. Okay, that makes total sense. So I've, I've had um, people say to me that, or foster parents complain that the court system is overloaded. And some of those plans that you're talking about that are supposed to take, um, did you say 15 or 22 months? 15 out of 22 months, that's right. Okay, um, that those are really taking like three and four years because of courts being overloaded. Is that um, true in your experience or are they getting it confused with something else? Sure. So I'm involved in what's called the Cold Case Project. It's a collaborative um, effort between DFACS, the Administrative Office of the Courts, the Supreme Court of Georgia, and the Office of the Child Advocate. It's been in existence 10 years. We look at the worst of the worst of the cases. We use a predictive model to figure out which children are likely to age out of foster care. Those are the ones with really bad statistics, right? More yeah. likely they end up homeless, in prison, committing crimes, all of those things. So we look at children who are predicted to age out of foster care 
to look at their case with um, child welfare experts, lawyers, to overcome barriers and see what's been the problem. I say all of that to say, those are the worst of the worst of the cases, right? They're not the norm, but you do have some cases where children have been in care three, four, five, six, seven years, and a termination of parental rights has been pending or hasn't happened three, four, five, six, seven years. There can be lots of reasons for that. Is there one reason like the courts are overburdened? No. The reality is the court cases, yes, the caseload's high. PFAC's caseload is high. You can have continuances of different cases for good cause. So perhaps termination of parental rights gets set down and you have to have it continued because the parent hasn't been properly served because the parent's moving around. Perhaps they're entitled to a lawyer and a termination of parental rights. I'm always going to make sure a parent has a lawyer because that's the most severe thing a juvenile court can do is terminate their rights. Mm -hmm. So you may then have to appoint a lawyer and it needs to be continued in order for that attorney to be prepared to go forward. There are lots of legal reasons why hearings are reset for good cause, which is the legal requirement. Having said that, should it take three, four years? Absolutely not. It should never take that long. Mm -hmm. And the worst of the worst of the cases, yes, I too see that that happens. Okay. Okay. So you said something about appointing an attorney to the parent, um, the biological parent. Now, that's something that you advocate for or it happens out automatically? All right, great question. So let's talk about difference between legal parent and biological parent. Okay. Obviously, the biological mother's the legal mother. That person is entitled to an attorney and it should always happen. They either hire someone if they cannot afford an attorney, one can be appointed to represent them. That should happen. Keep in mind, we've got 157 count, 156. I've just forgotten off the top of my head. Counties in the state of Georgia. Everywhere does it a little bit differently. Every county is a little different in terms of the, the practices of the defects office. Every juvenile court has its own um, things it has to contend with in reality. So this is what the law says. Every mother who comes in with an abused, neglected child allegation has the right to have an attorney represent her. As for father, a putative father who is biological but not legal, right? So right. the mother girlfriend, or he signed the birth certificate, but they've never gotten married. He's the biological father. Under the law, he does not have a right to have an attorney represent him. If he's a legal father, so either married to the mother or um, has legitimated and is the legal father, then he absolutely has the right to have an attorney represent him. I will tell you, different courts do it a little differently. Some courts say, we cannot afford to give every putative father an attorney. That's the reality. So they're going to have to be legal before they're entitled to counsel, which is true. Some courts say, and I'll tell you, for instance, if I have a biological father who has been involved with this child to such an extent that this child knows this person is his father, I will appoint an attorney and say to the attorney, I'm appointing you to figure out should he legitimate, is he the legal father? I want you to protect his rights, even though he may not yet be a legal father. Every court is a little bit differently, different in how that's handled. Okay, and say, this just came up to my, came in my mind, but say you have two parents that are both legal, let's say they're both married, um, and they're the biological parents, and one is the abuser, or the person that is, um, 
causing the concern for Department of Children and Families and the other isn't. Um, does What does that look like? Can it be easily solved by one has to just not live in the home? Sure, but that easily solved has to be the one who's not the abuser exercises the protective capacity that the court needs to see. So it's one thing to say, oh, I've kicked them out. It's all good. And then you learn, oh, by the way, even though she's kicked that person out, she takes the kids and stays there every day and stays overnight every night. That's not protective. There has to be demonstrated protective capacity. So for instance, if the person who is the non-abuser goes to a shelter to get protection, files for a temporary protective order or a restraining order against the perpetrator, kicks them out of the house, takes all measures possible to protect their children from the perpetrator, then that person with those protective capacities, I would argue is appropriate to care for the children and should have the children. Too often, too often I see parents stay with the abuser, even if the abuser's abusing the heck out of their children. And that's the unfortunate reality. They're often a victim themselves, but bottom line, even if they're a victim, they have to be in a position and there are services to help them, but they have to be in a position to protect their children. Okay, yeah, and I could see this happening with kinship care as well. Just because the kids go to grandma, it doesn't mean that grandma isn't just having the bio mom come over every day or isn't practically having bio mom still raise the kids um, and just being a temporary kind of placeholder for the court. So I, I see that you'd probably use that same, they need to prove that they are um, protecting the kids. Absolutely, and something I want everyone to be aware of because of that, because of the reality that relatives might not be any better than the parent or they might be the best person to care for the children. If and when DFACS has custody of a child, I as a court cannot tell them where to place the child. That's their function. The executive branch gets to do that, not the judicial branch. I can tell them what's not appropriate. So for instance, if the child's being in a hotel because there are no foster homes, I as a judge can say, that's not appropriate. You're going to have to move that child. I just cannot tell them where to move the child. The reason I say that is family members get very, very frustrated. I see it in court all of the time. Once DFACS has custody, DFACS policy is they have to do a home evaluation on any relatives before they can consider placing with the relatives. The reality is it's very invasive. It takes time. They try to do it in 30 days, but if the relative doesn't cooperate right then, that can delay it, or sometimes they're backlogged and it can take longer. That means the relative, it's very invasive. Think about if you have a sister, for instance, and her children get taken because of something that has happened, and she says, okay, I want my sister to have them. She's got her life together, and I'm just going to send my children to her, and she lives out of state, and DFACS has to take custody. All of a sudden, the home evaluation of that sister is going to include things like criminal background check, drug screens, screens of everybody that lives in the home, um, educational records of the children she may have in her home, all of those things. And they have to come look at the home and ask you questions about guns and if there are guns in the home and where's your medication if you have medication in the home, because they have to make certain that that home would be safe for the child. That's a good thing, but the reality is it can take a long time. Yeah, absolutely. So you just mentioned um, 
that the court can say this is an appropriate you can't have a kid in a hotel room we don't you know we're not going to tell you where to move them but you have to move them well if they're in a hotel room because there's no foster homes one how quickly do they have to respond to that court order and two what's the option the, um, great questions. I don't have good answers. First of all, I'm the judge. I issue the court order. So I can say to them, that child has to be moved today. Okay. And that means that child has to be moved today if they want to comply with the court order. Okay. On the other hand, it may be a situation, and I, I will tell you what I do in my courtroom. I hear all of the evidence. But for instance, if it's a judicial review and you've got a lot of other people in the courtroom that have information that's helpful, I don't make them talk, but I always say, okay, you're the grandmother. You've been here at every hearing. Is there anything you want to say to me? You don't have to say anything, but is there more that you want me to know? By doing that, I often have the whole picture. So let's say a child's in a hotel because that child has special needs and needs to be placed in a facility that can handle those needs. And there are two beds that will become available in a week. In the meantime, they've got a specialist staying with the child in the hotel. Maybe for that child's safety, I will say, listen, that's not appropriate, but I will give you two weeks to move that child to the appropriate placement. So the terms of getting a child out of a placement are made by the judge. And if DFACS wants to comply with that court order, they will meet those time frames. Okay, great. So that's really helpful. So you talked about an attorney for the bio parents. So I'm assuming there's an attorney for the child. Yes. And how closely does that attorney work with Department of Children and Families, the foster parent, you know, guardian ad litem, CASA worker? How much say does everybody get? Okay, great. These are such great questions. So first of all, every child in a dependency case, which is uh, accusations of abuse and neglect, every child in those cases is entitled in Georgia to an attorney who represents what the child wants and a guardian ad litem who advocates for the best interest. Because think about frequently, sure. every child wants to go home. Sure. That's what they know. No matter what has happened, they don't want to be in foster care. They want to go home generally. Yeah. The best interest is, okay, even though the child wants to go home, it's not in their best interest because the parents are still using methamphetamines. They have tried three rehab programs and they haven't been able to kick it. And so it's just not in the child's best interest. The attorney and the best interest person can be the same unless and until there's a conflict. Every county's different. So some counties have attorneys and then as the attorney for the child and use CASA as the guardian ad litem. Some counties may have an attorney that's the attorney and an attorney serve as the guardian ad litem who's the best interest. My point is, don't think that what I've said is the way it is in your county. Sure. You've got to know your county, right? Um, so that those people are very involved in their, at every court hearing. They should be interviewing the child, speaking to the child, speaking to the other parties. The reality is, let's be honest, I don't care what you do for a living, we all know they're good ones and they're bad ones. Whether it's attorneys, whether it's plumbers, it doesn't matter. There's always good and bad in the industry. So the personality of the attorney in the CASA or the guardian ad litem is going to be different. And I think my best suggestion is reach out if you're in the system, if you're a foster parent or if you're a parent, reach out to those individuals to try to have conversations with them and provide information you have. 
Great. That's great advice. So what does it take to terminate a parent's rights? I should have pulled out the code section. It's very <laughs> complex. I, I, so I know that it is difficult. Type. You have to, but generally you have to prove the grounds for termination of parental rights by clear and convincing evidence. Okay. So one of the grounds, for instance, may be that the parent has had lots of time to complete a case plan for reunification. Let's say that it specifically included they needed to follow the recommended recommendations of their psychological evaluation, which included parenting classes and included going to a psychiatrist and getting medication because they're schizophrenic, for instance, right? And we're at 20 months into it and that parent has still chosen not to go to the psychiatrist because they say they don't need medication. And with mental health issues, that can often happen. So all of these resources have appropriately been put into place by DFACS to try to help that parent actually go to a psychiatrist, get the mental health treatment, and have worked with them closely, and it has not been successful. So no compliance with the CAPE or not, not submit, what's the right language, give me a minute. They have not made significant progress on their case plan. That's one prong. You also then have to prove how has that harmed the child, mm. that the dependency is likely to continue, that that dependency continuing will harm the child, and that it's in the best interest of the child to terminate parental rights. So you have to prove the grounds, but then you also have to prove it will continue to be dependency, that's going to harm the child, and, um, as a result, that it's in the best interest of the child that rights be terminated. Okay, so if they're in a current foster placement that is dying to adopt them, does that go into that decision at all? It seems like it could be like th that shouldn't matter if you know the parent should be given every opportunity, regardless if somebody else really wants to adopt the kid. But it also is nice to know that there is a place for this kid permanently. Right. That does make a difference. Okay. So when there's a termination of parental rights, um, especially with reasonable efforts, it makes a difference because the department has to show they've made reasonable efforts for an adoption case plan. And so they have to show that they've placed the child in an appropriate home with someone who wants to adopt the child. So it's very important in the reasonable efforts regard. It's also very important if I terminate rights, then I have to go to disposition and decide what happens next. It's crucial in that part. However, I'm just gonna be transparent. The reality is how well a child is doing in a foster home is not grounds for a termination of parental rights. Sure. So it can be heartbreaking when you have a child who's very bonded with foster parents who have been in the life of the child since that child came into care who want to adopt the child and everything is going so well that that would, could be a perfect scenario. And then there's a termination of parental rights hearing that doesn't happen because there aren't sufficient legal grounds according to the court and rights aren't terminated. It can be devastating for the foster family, but the reality is that can happen. It always needs to be a thought that that can happen. Now, I do want foster parents to remember they're really important in the state of Georgia they have a right to be heard at every hearing. So they should be getting notice of hearings and they then should have an opportunity to be heard. Every court does it a little different. They can put it in writing and the court receives it in writing. The court might give them an opportunity to speak at the hearing, but in some regard, 
the court should give them the opportunity to be heard because the reality is the foster parents know, are the children acting out after visits? Do the children have behavioral needs that have started recently after the visits? Are the children now exhibiting things that need to be diagnosed or have been diagnosed? So now these children have special needs. Foster parents have a wealth of information that's important for the court to know. It's so nice to hear you say that. The last person I interviewed just said like, you gotta be talking to foster parents, whether it's policymakers or whatever. It's like the foster parents know what that child needs. Um, and I'm, I'll admit, again, I'm pretty transparent. I've had a lot of life, good life lessons being a trial attorney in court all of the time representing defects. And I will admit to you, 20 years ago when I was trying cases, and I, I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. I'm a good trial lawyer. I know that. I was never considering calling the foster parents often. Like I just didn't, it didn't enter my mind. And then I learned after one experience afterwards when the foster parent was furious with me for not considering them as a witness, it was my moment of, aha, I've made a mistake. I mean, we still got what we asked for, but you're right, you have all the information. So that was my lesson to say to my client, I want to talk to the foster parent. What do they know? What would they say? Let me interview them because then I can decide if they need to be a witness or not. It's crucial. First to admit, sometimes as attorneys, we don't always think of those things, right? Until we have an experience to say, yeah, those foster parents have a lot of information. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's great to hear you say. So in your experience, how often do um, relatives come out of the woodwork later on down the process so maybe a kid's you know not not within that first 72 hours or that first month even but it's been a few months or now it's starting to look like uh termination of parental rights is going to happen and now grandma wants to step up or an uncle or whatever sure it happens and i think the misnomer is it's not necessarily out of the woodwork. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a relative who hasn't taken any positive steps to do anything that they've needed to do to be considered. And they show up at the TPR and say, but I'm the relative. I should have this child. Sure. That's a little bit different. That's to me coming out of the woodworks. And it's like, you've been considered. The reality is number one, you have parents who are angry that their children have been taken away. And after you've taken the children away, they think it's you personally, even though it's not, you have to say to them, okay, now that we've done that and you're really, really angry with me or you're high or you have mental health issues, I'd like you to tell me every relative you can think of because I need to reach out to them. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not going to. So even though there's a process and they can be asked in court who are the relatives, there's no way to guarantee they're gonna mention everybody. So what I do see is sometimes parents wait until TPR and then they say, oh, wait a minute. Now I wanna tell you about these relatives you had no idea about. And so that can be a frustration to the court, but the reality is we can't blame the relative if the relative didn't know. So that's one frustration for people. The other in terms of coming out of the woodworks, again, maybe the mother tells or the father tells defects, even the children tell defects, these are all the relatives, or this is my auntie, and I, I, I saw her every week, why haven't I seen her? And with turnover and systemic issues faced by defects, mm -hmm. nobody ever investigates that. So then you have 20 months later, a case manager new to the case is reviewing the entire record. And in doing that, she's like, wait a minute, who's this auntie? What in the world? So that's another scenario. People think, oh, they came out of the woodworks. Well, no, the reality is sometimes relatives are overlooked. 
And if you get to a TPR, you better make darn sure as a court, there are no relatives that have been overlooked because that's the worst thing that could happen to the child, to the adoptive family, to the, to the relative. So all of those are reasons, yes, it does happen. It does happen. I will tell you another story when I was representing DFACS and it was the judge's decision, but it was horrible in terms of the aftermath. Um, there was a child, we were at a termination of parental rights hearing, a relative showed up in court, had just found out, had just learned. DFACS knew nothing about the relative. Consequently, my client couldn't say anything negative. We couldn't say that uh, they were dangerous or had an inappropriate home. The relative told the court everything about them and the judge said, I don't have any grounds to keep this child from this relative. Case dismissed, I'm gonna give, well, not case dismissed. I'm not gonna hear the TPR. I'm gonna give custody to these relatives because it's appropriate. So off that child went and the child had been living with the adoptive family, bonded with the adopted family. It was traumatic for everybody involved. Legally, the court had the legal ability at that time to do what he did. Um, so my caution again, it can happen. I think people get lulled into this, but everybody said I'm gonna adopt. Everybody said I'm going to adopt. Be cautious, you don't know that until you get to the end of the road. Yeah, and speaking about the end of the road, so um, termination of parental rights or TPR, that happens, but that doesn't mean, that just means those parental rights are gone. Um, you can still have um, relatives come up, correct? Oh yeah. What's the path from TPR to now you're eligible for adoption and then adoption? Right, so um, that's what the judge has to decide after TPR and first has to consider, are there any appropriate relatives that you give custody to for purposes of adoption? If not, then is it appropriate to give the agency custody for purposes of adoption? Okay. So if there are no relatives who are appropriate identified and that's all ruled out, then the judge gives custody, can give custody to the agency for purposes of adoption. And then the foster family takes it from there with DFACS to go through the adoption process in Superior Court. Okay, okay. So even if somebody goes to Department of Children and Families and they say, listen, all I wanna do is adopt. I do not want a kid in my home that has any risk of getting put in any other home. I want the ones that are eligible for adoption. Even those people uh, in those cases could still have a relative show up or someone else identified where adoption wouldn't happen with that particular foster parent, correct? Absolutely, everything has a risk in life and there is a risk that could happen. I'll give you a situation example of that. Um, fortunately, in my opinion, Georgia has the safe harbor law so that a, a, a mother can have a newborn and leave that child at a hospital um, or leave that child at a fire station without criminal prosecution. Um, in those situations, frequently the department, after getting the child confirms and a lot of times the mother says no, I'll sign away my rights. I'm not able to keep this child. I did turn this child in. Well, there was one in which the mother wavered and finally said, no, I want my child back. Well, the family with whom the baby was placed kind of thought, assumed, was told she's left her baby at a hospital. That's what she was supposed to do. Absolutely, you can adopt. Well, the reality is that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. That's my biggest caution. There's always a risk. There's always a risk. You just don't know until it concludes. Okay. That's really, really good for people that I know there's a lot of people in those situations and they want to limit their risk as much as possible. So I think the more they can go into it prepared, 
um, the better. So tell me about one of your hardest cases, and then I want you to tell me about one of your biggest wins that you had. You know, you asked me this question before we started talking today, and now I'm trying to remember um, the hardest case, and I, I can't remember what I shared with you then, but you know, I'm in the middle of a case now um, that is so disheartening to me, and it's a parent with mental health issues, significant mental health issues. And as we see with mental health, a person can be on medications that really, really help so that they have the parental capacity, but then they don't like the way they feel on those medications. And so they go off of those medications. And so all the things they could demonstrate to say, I can care for my children go away. Mm. And that can go on as a cycle for a very long time. And what makes me sad is for me to know that, wow, I've seen this person on their meds and they're capable. And I've seen this person off their meds and they're not capable. And yet I can't make them do it. You mm -hmm. can't make that person take their meds. This case has been going on for years mm. and the children still don't have permanency for a variety of different reasons and motions and appeals and all of these things that are legal process and should be right. Parents have constitutional rights that need to be protected. As a result though, these kids linger and, and the siblings have been moved. They've been separated. They've been in different homes. And keep in mind for children, probably pe preaching to the choir, but for everyone else, trauma-informed care is a big thing now. And we know trauma affects brain development. Right. And as a result, it affects behaviors. And a lot of the things and behaviors we see in school systems, for example, can be because that child's gone through trauma. Right. Every single thing that happens in foster care is traumatic to a child. They get picked up in the middle of the night. The police are there. They're traumatized because something's going on with their mother. They see their mother or father arrested. They get brought into shelter care. They get separated from their sibling. They go to a home where they don't know the smells, the people, the animals, the school district. They get put in a school where they don't have any friends. They don't know anyone and kids pick on them because they look different or they smell different or they sound different. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are traumatic events. So the case that I'm referencing, these kids did get moved around. The siblings, they actually got separated. Every single time that happens, it's more traumatic, more traumatic. It builds up in the brain the brain chemicals change, and as a result, their brain chemistry changes, and their behaviors change, and then they get in trouble, and one of them just did for delinquency issues, because their behaviors are bad enough at school, and then they get kicked out of school, and they become um, an alternative school. All of this to say that vicious cycle, for me to see that played out in a case, which I'm right now watching firsthand, is sad, and hard, and awful, and the hardest thing for me to see. Mm. I totally hear that and um it's so difficult when you know there's one thing that could change that trajectory for all of those kids and in this case it, it's meds um yeah that's very difficult because you're kind of a bystander you know you're at you're at the mercy of whether or not that mom is going to be able to continue on her meds yeah, that is right. tough. And I will say, you know, that's another worst of the worst cases because theoretically TPR should have been filed, heard, determined or not, and then adoption should have occurred. But for a whole number of, it was like, it was the perfect storm of system errors and problems that just hasn't happened yet. So that's not the norm, but you asked me my worst, that's the worst. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me one of your biggest wins. You know, some of my biggest wins are when I see parents who, let's be honest, are 
scrappy parents mm -hmm. and they have chosen the wrong people. They have chosen drugs. They have chosen everything over their children. And the reality is, as soon as that child comes into care, I have seen cases where that's what it took for the parents to say, oh my gosh, what have I done? And actually commit to do every single thing that's court ordered, every single thing that's in the case plan to make certain those children come back to them and they get off drugs and they go to rehab and they go to AA to continue sobriety and they take care of the issues they've created by their own actions and behaviors and get the children back and the children thrive and they thrive and they're a success story. And that does happen. That's a good scenario. Yeah. And that warms my heart because it's like, it's nothing to feel ashamed about. Like you were down in the courts in this, our systems did exactly what they were supposed to do. And you know what? You would be worse off if we didn't intervene, if we didn't have these proceedings. Um, so that is beautiful. And I'm, I know anytime reunification can happen, the kids, the kids are, are happy and uh, that's really what we want. Right. And you know, I remind people, we all have our stuff. Oh, we yeah. all have our stuff. And think about if someone came in your life and anybody watching us and looked at every aspect of your life, there are things you would not want people to know. Mm -hmm. you, so there's, everybody has their stuff. And the goal of the system is when that stuff causes any type of abuse or neglect, it's not okay. We need to step in. But people's stuff can go that route before they realize it. And so for an agency, a system, a judge to step in and change that trajectory like you talked about is the best case scenario. I love it. So this is a big loaded question, but I'm asking everybody that comes on, what's your opinion on how we end this foster care crisis, which seems to be getting uh, worse and worse? Yeah, it is getting worse and worse. Um, you know, the numbers have increased in the last three years. The number of children in foster care in the state of Georgia went up dramatically about three years ago and continued to climb. It is, there's so many different aspects of it. The first though is parental capacity. And we live in a world where it's instant gratification, I think, and stresses and people taking out stresses that more and more children, we don't know statistically, are more children being abused and neglected? Probably not, but rather it's coming to the attention of the agency mm -hmm. and people are reporting it. We're getting into, to this type of um, scenario where we're really capturing the children that are being abused and neglected. So the first is parental capacity needs to be improved before it gets so severe. So if more people would ask for help and not be ashamed and uh, look for assistance, that could prevent child abuse and neglect. Child abuse and neglect is very preventable. That's the good news. It can be prevented. We just have to get into the beginning when it can be prevented before it, it happens and that's possible. So that's number one, that would help because then the number of children coming into care necessarily reduces. Number two is children shouldn't languish in foster care. So our system needs to continue to improve so that uh, children are either reunified or they're not. And if they're not reunified, that the right legal grounds are there to see them adopted by another family because children need to exit care. And so when we have this foster care crisis and too many children in care, we also need to look very hard to make certain children who need to come out of care are coming out of care. Mm -hmm. What we see a lot is children come into care for one reason, 
and then they're never allowed to go back to the family because of concerns of what if mm -hmm. or this might or some new concern. Well, that's all well and good, but it better equal risk because if it doesn't equal risk, then that child needs to go back home. So we've also got to make sure these children are coming out of care as soon as they need to and not a day longer. And we do see kids languishing, which is not good. I was just I was just thinking about that case that you talked about with the mom uh, with the meds, and I thought, oh well, now that you've seen both sides of the curtain, you know, her taking her meds, her not, even if she did great for you know a year, there's always that worry. And then I was thinking to myself, well, you can't have that worry. Any any one of us could go off the rails at any time. It's not it's not your job um, to say how how good are you going to do for the rest of your life. Anybody can start, you know, be. A victim of addiction or anything like that so I totally get the yeah maybe we want to put a microscope but really we just need to come back to baseline of what is fit care that's right yeah now you know and then that's Georgia there are different standards in different states some states it's more of a what if scenario and that captures the what if what if they do that well not here and and frankly what if any of us do anything we shouldn't? What if any right. of us make a really horrible decision and drive drunk with our children in the car? What ifs are not enough in the state of Georgia? Right, right. I totally get that. Well, this has been a great conversation. I know it's been very enlightening for me. I mean, I've been a social worker. I worked in foster care adoption for over 10 years, but even I don't know a lot of what happens at the court level. So super enlightening for me. I hope that you've I feel like you've really given a lot of great pointers for our foster parents, especially ones that possibly want to adopt, um, and even some bio parents of what they can do to advocate and um, what the court process looks like for them. So thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's been a pleasure, and I'm going to keep following you on LinkedIn. Great, and I'm going to follow your work. I really appreciate you bringing it to light and talking to people and putting the conversation out there. If more people did what you're doing, I think that that too could help our system improve. So thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Wow. Oh my gosh. Was that cool or what, you guys? Ah, I hope that you got something out of that and that that helped possibly give you a peek behind the curtain of what it's like for the court system. I know it's hard to understand and it feels like a lot of the outcomes kind of hang in the balance of the courts, but I think that Ashley's perspective was great to glean some insight from and also how great is it that we have judges like her that are willing to come on podcasts just to help us better understand we need more people like her in the world okay I hope that this was helpful again if you heard something that you liked or you felt like you want to share with somebody else please share this podcast we are also now on YouTube if you want to watch these podcast on YouTube and you'd rather see faces and video, I know I like that, um, go over to YouTube, share it, follow us on social, and I can't wait to talk to you guys next time. Have a great week. Bye-bye.